Thank you, Father, for the great privilege of being part of your church. And, Father, it's already been encouraging. And we have sensed in your great plan the value of just gathering to begin our week with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to join our voices in praise and to join our voices in instructive hymns and and to remind ourselves of doctrinal truth through the hearing of the word and through the singing of hymns. Father, may we receive well now the instruction from your word that strengthens us and, and guides us and renews us. Father, we recognize our weaknesses. We would readily admit how easily distracted we are, how easily we are deceived. We want to be a discerning people in this day and age. We want to be a a biblically literate people. We want to be a biblically obedient flock. And so, Father, strengthen us through the preaching of your word. Use me in all of my weaknesses this morning as your mouthpiece. And may we find that the Holy Spirit as he so often does when we take our Bibles on our lap, just uses the the Word of God like a scalpel to dig deep, to provoke our thoughts, to renew our sensitivity to being the people you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray, committing ourselves to the hearing and the doing of your Word. Amen. I have referenced on numerous occasions... The day that I cleaned my dad's garage after his funeral. Some of you have done that before and you have to understand that you can't clean my dad's garage in one day. And so we spent a couple days rooting through the junk and cleaning out the rafters and sorting things and tossing things and dividing things. And up high above my dad's workbench on a cabinet that he had there where he woodworked in the corner of his garage... I reached up and took down this old duck decoy. It now sits on the top shelf in my bookcase where I can glance up from my desk and uh, be reminded of my father and the great joy that he had sitting in a blind in the Kalamazoo River shooting ducks. Now, ducks are nice animals and good birds, and if I, I don't want to offend anybody with that, but let me tell you that he did a better job shooting this decoy than he did most ducks. But my dad loved to duck hunt. One of the things that we would do when we duck hunted there on this little island that was in the middle of the Kalamazoo River is we would put out decoys. You know what decoys are. People decorate their house with them. Hunters use them. Interesting thing about decoys is is that when they're out there on the water and drifting and the the water is tossing, to to the duck ducks coming in and they look down, they believe they understand what they're getting into. And they think, look at that nice V of ducks, how they've landed there. Let's just go right down that V. And then the men are behind the blinds in the bulrushes in the weeds. And they're down and they're, see, here they come. Men are hard to figure out. (laughs) Freezing cold on a Saturday morning and here comes these poor little ducks. Here they come, here they come. And they wait till they're right ready to sit down on the water and up they jump. And one day my dad blasted away and he sunk a decoy. And he shot this thing full of holes. I don't know if you can see them from there. But, you know, it's a reminder to us of the seriousness of deception. Decoys are all about deception, aren't they? I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me. And I think how rude to to bring in those beautiful mallard 
ducks and bluebills and teal and they think they know what they're doing and they think it's a great Saturday morning and then they find out that they've been deceived and it cost them their lives. When we enter into 1 Timothy chapter 4, did I say 3? I've said it so many times, it's hard to make my tongue work. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We have completed chapter 3. And as we move into chapter 4, you need to understand that the Apostle Paul, using uh, this hymn at the end of chapter 3, sort of as a, a closing benediction, as it were, for that passage of instruction, he's beginning almost to start a new phase of the of the letter, a renewed emphasis in the letter. He's going to be direct. He's going to be personal. He's going to name Timothy by name multiple times. He's going to give him personal instruction. We're going to benefit from that and learn from it immensely. And as he begins this new section, he begins, number one this morning, with a serious warning to the church. I want to read our passage. We want to take the first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want you to see this serious warning, and it has everything to do with deception. And instead of approaching ducks in a raft of decoys on a river, I want you to picture yourself driving into the parking lot of your church, as it were, ducks coming into land, coming in to feed on a Sunday morning, driving into the parking lot. And the question is, I wonder if there's any deception, any decoys of the evil one that we would find inside the walls of the church. That's Paul's great concern in Ephesus for young Pastor Timothy, that he have great discernment, and it evidently was a problem, or the Apostle Paul wouldn't have addressed it, if it wasn't an actual problem they were dealing with, and I think that it was, because he will address it again in chapter, uh, in chapter 5. But you need to know that if it wasn't a problem, it certainly can be a problem. And we've seen through the centuries of church history that it is a huge issue. People who perhaps began as well-intentioned and good-hearted in the ministry at some point in time departed from faithfulness to the Word of God and faithfulness to the doctrines of God and departed from a true word, and somewhere along the line, the Apostle Paul is going to tell Timothy, they actually knew, they knew that they departed from the faith, and they didn't care, and they did it anyway. And they were in the church, and they were disguised, believe it or not, as pastors and Sunday school teachers. Wow. Number one this morning, as we look at our text, I want you to see a serious warning to the church. Let's read our text. Now, the Spirit capital S, Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. If you still use your NIV or you have a New King James It'll say, or NAS, it'll say, as with an iron, the ESV left it out of their translation. Their consciences are seared as with an iron. They don't work anymore. They're not tender and sensitive. They're seared and hard like a ruined steak on the grill. You could use it for a hockey puck. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, 
And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Interesting verses, aren't they? And at first glance, you kind of wonder, what in the world is Paul talking about? And so let's just break it down and let's, number one, as I've said, take a look at the serious warning. It's a serious warning because of what he's warning us about, but I want you to see that it is a warning. There's no surprise here. The Apostle Paul said the Spirit expressly, that idea is that he clearly, explicitly, clearly, expressly says... You need to expect that in the church, there will be those who are followers of Christ who are going to fall away. The timing of the falling away, he says, is in these last days. Now, that's an interesting expression in our New Testament. And if you've read your New Testament very much, you know that that's a repeated phrase by the writers of the New Testament. Let me just rattle off a few examples. We don't have to take time to look there. But I noticed even after I had written these down in my notes in my preparation and I was doing some other cross-referencing, I ran into it a few more times and didn't even write them down. It is a repeated phrase. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John wrote in his epistle... My children, it is the last hour. It's an interesting expression, isn't it? Isn't it? Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.20, writing about Jesus, that he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times. Jesus was created before the foundation of the world, but in these last times, he has been revealed to us. Hebrews 1.2 Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Isn't that interesting? We have repeated prophetic passages that talk about in the last days, and you get the sense that we haven't quite gotten there yet. But when you read a verse like Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, and it says that in these last days God has spoken to us through his Son, we would call that part of direct revelation, right? God has given us general revelation. We're supposed to wake up in the morning and be warmed by a beautiful sunshine like this morning and see the mist and all of creation and the turning of the leaves and the marvel of the the lunar cycle. And and we're to say, what an amazing creator God we have. All people everywhere are supposed to do that. That's a general revelation. But then God got very specific and one day a crazy man almost, John the Baptist in rough clothes and eating locusts said, hey, everybody, he's here. Make the way straight, even out the roads. Here he comes. And God revealed us to us himself directly through his son, the Lord Jesus. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews 1, verse 2. And he says he did it in these last days. So you have the idea. um, Jude 18, verse 18, said that in the last time... There will be scoffers and mockers. Boy, don't we have mockers and scoffers of the word of God nowadays. It's disgraceful. And so as we read our New Testament, we'll not take time to prove the point further. But I think that you know, if you've read your Bible, you know that in the New Testament, what you begin to understand is that the last days or the last times begin with the incarnation of Christ and run until he comes again at his second coming. These are the last days. It's the last era of time. And all of this is the unfolding of God's final plan of the ages culminated in Christ. 
these last days. And so we live in these last days. It's accurate for us to say that these are the last days. Some people say, well, how come it's taken so long these last days? And Peter even talked about that in 2 Peter chapter 3, didn't he? He said there will be people who just like in the days of Noah, in the same exact way in the days of Noah, will say, where is this coming you're talking about? And you have the dramatic imagery of Noah out in his backyard at a dry dock that he built in the suburban neighborhood where he lived, far from any water, building this huge ship for decades and decades and decades. And every once in a while, when he stood up to straighten his back out, he would proclaim the message of righteousness to the godless people around him, and they would shout back, Well, then when's it going to happen? And then one day, Rain began to fall. Can you imagine? And can you imagine when, when the earth began to shake and the, the deeps broke open and people all of a sudden realized the door had been shut on the ark and the day was over when they could be rescued and they started getting their furniture and moving it up to the second floor and then they crawled out the second floor window and got on the roof and then they grabbed their neighbor's boat by the stern as it went by as their roof was covered and then they could hold on no longer and they slipped into the raging waters. It happened. And Peter says, in the same way... People will mock this coming of the Lord in these last days. And he goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the reason it's taking so long is so that the gospel can go out and people can be saved because God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all of us to be saved. Are you saved today? Hey, what do you mean by that? I'm not lost. I know right where I am. 160 Daniel Road. No, uh, you know, the Bible teaches that we're lost in our sin, doesn't it? And as Paul is so concerned in this passage, there is only one way. There is no other way to gain a righteousness apart from looking to the cross of Christ where he took our sin upon himself and bore the penalty of sin in the eyes of a holy God. But out of love for us, God our Heavenly Father gave Jesus his righteous Son to be our sin bearer so that we could acknowledge our sinfulness in the presence of a holy God, look to Jesus and be saved. That's what we mean by being saved. And there's no other way, the apostle, or Peter said, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, when he said, what must I do to be saved? Tell me. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen. And so that's what it means to be saved. And these last days, God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so the Apostle Paul, writing Timothy here at Ephesus, says, Now the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, clearly says, when does he say it? I think that the Spirit, through Jesus, said it. Um, He said it in uh, Matthew's Gospel. He said that the day is coming when there will be those who will come and deceive and will depart from the faith. Jesus taught that himself. Perhaps the Apostle Paul, even as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this letter to Pastor Timothy recognized that the Spirit of God was leading him to write these words down. And that's what he means. The Spirit is expressly telling you through my pen right now. You need to know in these last days, this is a serious warning to the church, some will depart from the faith. 
Now you need to see that word depart. This warning is that not everybody's going to stay in the faith and that people will depart. The idea there is that it is a purposeful, deliberate departure from a former position that was once held. And so people, what his point is, is that they were in Christ, they believed in Christ, they professed to be born again, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, and then one day they deliberately departed from that position and they came over to a new position, they departed from the faith. The idea there is that of a falling away. This is a stronger term than what Paul used in 1 Timothy, the end of chapter 1, where he talked about uh, those, uh, he talked about, Alexander and Hymenaeus being shipwrecked in their faith. Verse 19, people who got off whack. Chapter 1, verse 19, people got off whack and they shipwrecked their faith. They ended up somewhere they didn't mean to be. In chapter 4, verse 1 here, it's the idea of somebody who will knowingly, purposely fall away, depart from the faith. We call this apostasy. Do you know that word apostasy? A falling away. Somebody who departs from the faith, and Paul's going to argue in this passage that they know what they're doing and they know that they're deceived. On the other hand, with their seared conscience, they convince themselves of many things being true that aren't true. You've dealt with people with a seared conscience before? That's a scary person. They believe things that are unreliable and untrue and they convince themselves of falsehoods. Paul is arguing, though, that at some point in time they departed by the, from the faith and they did it by devoting themselves in a knowing way to the doctrine of devils. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? Someone who, isn't, who falls away, that word apostasy, makes that individual an apostate. It's somebody who proclaims that there is another gospel and they stand against the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're an apostate. They destroy churches. They divide churches. They are the ones that Paul calls regularly for the elders of the church to stand up against and do not let apostasy in your church. Do not let those who fall away from the true gospel into your church. Don't let them teach in your church. And evidently in Ephesus, that was exactly the case. We saw that already in chapter 1, that people had risen to high positions in the church and were teaching in public ministry, and they began to teach a false gospel. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul makes it pretty clear that they knew what they were doing and they were liars with seared consciences. And that leads us to the second thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to recognize, and that is a frightening presence in the church. A frightening presence in the church. Now I want you to get a little mental imagery going here. Because look what he says. These people will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The idea in the Greek grammar here is that the teaching is coming directly from the demons through the person. Can you imagine going to your Sunday school class, sitting down, and your teacher gets up to teach and like these horns come out of their hair? (laughs) Welcome class. Welcome to my class. The demons have come to church today. And they are here to do what? They are here to destroy the work of Jesus Christ. My friend, mark it down. We're in a battle. 
Mark it down that Satan despises the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan despises the substitutionary work of Christ where people who are unrighteous like he is could look to the cross and be saved by no merit of their own. And so he does everything in his power to destroy the work of the cross, the work of the church, and the work of the gospel. And he does it in multiple ways. Sometimes he does it in bold, blatant, disrespectful ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says that Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. And remember, when Eve was deceived, it was a direct result of contradicting what God said. And Paul said, I am worried that in the same way that Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that you would be drawn away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. That is the ultimate goal of Satan, to draw God's people away from a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. And it happens in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that Satan has become masterful at destroying and undermining the gospel is by implanting in the church wolves in sheep's clothing. The Apostle Paul warned about that to the Ephesian elders, the very elders, no doubt, that received instruction from Timothy. In Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul was departing, he called for the Ephesian elders. And in one of his last words to them, it says that they wept and hugged Paul because they would never see him again, they thought, when he got on the ship to leave. And his, one of his last words was, as the elders, protect the flock. Watch over the flock that God has given you and that he paid for with his own blood. This is God's flock. And in the flock, somehow, in some subtle, slow, creeping, infiltrating way, God will place in the church, God, excuse me, Satan will work on people placed in the church who will teach and be manipulated by the doctrines of demons. That is a crazy thought, isn't it? That you could go to Sunday school and somebody could start to teach and literally it is orchestrated by the demons of hell, what they're teaching. It's crazy, isn't it? And so the Apostle Paul, first of all, he warns this serious warning to the church, people will fall away. It's a serious warning. Don't you fall away is the take from it. Then he talks about this frightening presence in the church, these deceitful spirits. They're lying. It's the teaching of demons. Their consciences are seared as with a hot iron, NIV, NAS, NKJV. I take it to be that they know that what they're teaching is not true, but they still really want to teach it. And they turn, I think there's all kinds of reasons for that. But let's take a look thirdly at what they're teaching. This is a harmful teaching to the church, a harmful teaching to the church. This frightening presence in the church now teaches, and what is, the, what is it that they're teaching that the Apostle Paul is talking about? This is what they teach. Let's pick it up again in verse 2. At the end of verse 1, these deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars, they're, they're Sunday school teachers and pastors who are liars, whose consciences are seared as with an iron. Verse 3, here's what they teach. Get ready for this. Who forbid marriage... And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And you say, wow, that's really heavy stuff. That's really serious. Don't you think that's kind of weird? I read it and I thought, what's this doctrine of devils? What's this doctrine of demons? What's this guy going to teach that's really going to twist and pervert us and turn us away and damn us to hell? It is this. 
that you should abstain from marriage and that there are certain foods you should not eat. What is that all about? But then you stop and think, down through the ages, that major religious movements have manipulated and controlled people by telling them they cannot marry, and by not marrying, they will find themselves in a more righteous position in Christ. And that by abstaining from certain foods and at certain times and feasts, and don't do this and don't do that, that somehow you will find yourself in a standing before God that is more righteous than you can get in Christ alone. And then you realize how subtle it is. Because, let me ask you a question. Do you, or is it just the warped way that I was raised in extra-conservative fundamentalism? I say that tongue-in-cheek. I praise God that I was raised under my father's conservative fundamentalism. It has served me well, I think. But do you find that when you really are in a season of wanting to be spiritual that there is something that appeals to your mind and your conscience, that if you would deny yourself, you would be more spiritual. That if you would just not allow yourself to have very much fun, you're a little bit more spiritual than if you're having a lot of fun. Do you know that feeling? I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. It's a little bit, okay, it seems harmless, it seems inconsequential, But by forbidding in marriage and by controlling the food they eat, they began down a road of perverting the very gospel of Jesus Christ, making people believe that they could earn some kind of a righteousness through this ascetic self-denial and controlling the body in such a way so that they are more spiritual. This is a mindset that through the centuries, we read stories about about these, um, like, it's not Jesuits, but that's what comes to my mind. Like a, like a priest who has received a super high calling in the middle centuries. And one, I read a story about a guy, and I can't think of his name. I should have looked it up. But he, he would literally stand all night long and not allow sleep to his body. And he would stand at the edge of a precipice and deny his body rest, thinking somehow he could get closer to God by denying himself the ease of a bed. It's interesting, isn't it, these kinds of things that people will do to themselves. Another guy built a tree platform, a platform up on poles, and to separate himself from the world, he lived up on this platform for like 30 years, 22 years. It was just an incredible amount of time. He would raise up his food in a bucket on a rope and lower his waist in a bucket. He wouldn't talk to people. After like 20 years of this, he comes down and he said, I've decided that it's just as easy to be sinful up on the platform than it is in the world. I'm going to live in the world. See, what happens is there becomes this twisting of the true gospel. Let's read from Jesus' own words and look at this for a minute in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, and I think you'll see a little bit more what I mean. Mark's gospel in chapter 7. So Paul has given us a serious warning. People will fall away. He said there's a frightening presence in the church. There are doctrines of demons from these people with seared consciences. And this harmful teaching to the church is this abstinence, this asceticism, this self-denial. And in Mark's gospel in chapter 7, I want you to read what Jesus wrote about this. It begins with verse 14. This is Jesus. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Listen to this. 
There is nothing outside a person that by, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, parentheses, he declared all foods clean. Underneath Levitical law, for example, under the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, there were certain foods they weren't supposed to eat. They would make you unclean. In Christ, who fulfilled the law, there's no more dietary law. And the great concern here is that in the New Testament church in Ephesus under Timothy, there were teachers in the church that are actually teaching a doctrine of demons, and they're ultimately teaching that you can find a righteousness apart from Christ by simply abstaining from certain foods. Doesn't that seem crazy? But you'll be amazed how many people buy into it, right? All the things people will buy into to try to find a righteousness before a holy God that has nothing to do with faith in Christ through grace alone. It's interesting, isn't it? And so Jesus literally declared all foods clean. All right? You can eat meat. You can eat, you know, pork. The Jews, that was a big concern. And you remember, he was teaching, it's not what comes from the outside that goes into a person that makes him corrupt. It's what's on the inside that shows out of a person. And when they got in the house, the disciples are scratching their head and say, what did you mean by that? And that's when Jesus said, don't you understand? We're not sinners because of eating the wrong thing. And therefore, I don't gain a righteousness by not eating the wrong thing. But I am a sinner because I have a corrupt heart in the presence of a holy God. I sin because I'm a sinner to the core and I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. So you don't attain a righteousness by denying yourself some pleasure. And ultimately, it ends up in some kind of a perverse um, reformation, pre-reformation Catholicism or a Puritan cloister theology where I won't sleep with a mattress or I will, I will be married, but I will not enter into marital relations. I'm better off unmarried. Or if I'm married, I leave that person from all of my ultimate devotion to Christ. And Paul's saying that's utter nonsense and that's a doctrine of demons. He goes on to tell us why. Our final point, number four, is a simple truth to guide the church. A simple truth to guide the church. Back in 1 Timothy, by the way, if you're taking notes, you can read Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 begins a section where Paul deals with the very same thing. I noticed in the ESV, it uses the word ascetic or asceticism three times. The idea that denying myself something physically on the outside will bring about an inner righteousness. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 16. You can take time to read it later, if you will, or if you're interested in that. So the Apostle Paul gives this serious warning to the church. There will be people who will fall away and follow a different gospel. They will, they will apostatize the gospel. They will become apostates. The thing about that is, is that it was brought about by this frightening presence in the church, these who are manipulated by the demons of hell. And the teaching that they're teaching is so harmful to the church, it seems... Not so harmful, but when you realize where it ends up is that it is an external righteousness that they're trying to apply that somehow I can do something that pleases a holy God and takes away my sin or my desire to sin from some kind of a work effort. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul gives them now in verse 4 and 5 a guiding principle for the church, a simple truth to guide the church. It is simply everything God created is good. 
be thankful and enjoy. I kind of like that, don't you? For everything created by God is good, verse 4, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I think what Paul's referencing in verse 5 about made holy by the word of God is let's go back to the days of creation. When God created, what did he say? He looked at it and at the end of the day, and it was good. And then he went on the next day and he created birds and animals and trees and fish, and it was good. And then he created a man, and the man was alone, and he said, it was good. No? It was not good. So he created a woman, and then he said, it's good. And then somebody's going to come along a few centuries, a few Eons later, a couple thousand years later, and say, you know what? What God said when it was good, that's not true. You need to not marry, and then you can please God better. But you know what's interesting about these teachings, and that comes to mind now, is that, okay, are you saying then that everything God created, I can enter into, all I have to do is be thankful? Yeah, I'm not saying it. Paul said it. What's that all about? You mean I can just go do whatever I want? No, I didn't say that. He said that whatever God created was good, and is to be used for good, and you're to enjoy it, and But isn't there some teaching in the Bible that says, 1 Corinthians 7, that's it. The Apostle Paul said, I wish that all you guys would be like me and never get married because then you could serve Christ better because once you get married, you're going to care more about the things of the earth than you do the things of God. I was thinking about that when I was on my ladder all day Friday, cutting holes in my ceiling, making faux beams down through our family room all day Friday. And I thought, on the day of judgment, these are just going to burn. And I'm spending all day making beams go down through my family room. Let me tell you, people, I don't care if there's fake beams down through my family room. They're going to be pretty. Everything Janie does is pretty. Except pick a husband. But, no, I'm doing the project most of the time with Joy. And I started poking holes in the ceiling in November, so I sure better get it fixed. Last November... That's what Paul meant. Paul said, you're going to have to start mowing the grass and pulling weeds on your day off. You're not going to be able to just go down to the mission and and share the gospel with people on your day off like I can when I'm a single guy. You can't just pull up and get on a ship and go on another mission trip. You're going to have to take care of your wife and your kids. And so you're so don't marry. You'll be better off. So what was Paul's? Was he undermining God saying it is good for not good for a man to be alone? No, Paul was just making a principle there, I think. That if you can live without a wife, you'll get more done for the gospel. Not very many of us get along very well without a wife. Furthermore, Proverbs chapter 18 says, He that finds a wife finds that which is good and receives favor from the Lord. It's God's plan, isn't it? But you see how in the scripture there is a teaching about not marrying. And then doesn't there a teaching in scripture about fasting? That when I really want to get serious in prayer, that I deny my body food and I'm going to fast. We don't have much instruction about fasting in the Bible, but we have fasting. And and then I hear that it's good for you to fast and I should just not do these things and I'm more spiritual because I fast. So there is a spiritual discipline of fasting. Denying the body food for the purpose of focusing on some urgent area of prayer so that as my hunger pains overwhelm me for the day or a couple days, I am driven in prayer. I am so in angst about this or so burdened about this that I'm not even going to eat. I just want to get on my knees and pray. 
So let me give you a couple principles about when is it okay to deny myself and when is it not? And I hope I can help bring a little bit more clarity to this. How do I know when I'm supposed to deny myself? What are the principles for saying no? Because the Apostle Paul just said, everything created by God is good. Enter in and enjoy it by giving thanks. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. We say, thank you, Lord, for my food, and I eat it. It was from God and acknowledge that it's from God's good hand. And so I pop open that Mountain Dew and drink it. Thank you, Lord. It's a good thing. Now, you could argue that God didn't make Mountain Dew, so we won't go there. First of all, we deny ourselves with a behavior of abstinence or separation or denial, number one, when God has spoken directly to the point. When God has spoken directly to the point. You see, this is not a license for sin. This is not something so that grace can abound. You say, well, I don't want to bring any kind of corruption to my salvation, so I'm going to just let myself do whatever I want to do. And every gift is from God, and it's good. And that includes my neighbor's wife, and it includes his car. And, it, you know, no, you're nuts. God has spoken directly to the point, and there are things that I'm not allowed into that territory because that's not how God designed it. And God has spoken directly to the point or clearly in biblical principle. And I think we all really understand that. The second thing that maybe brings it a little bit more closer to home is I deny myself when this behavior or entering into some joy or enjoyment, I will deny myself that joy when, number two, it almost always results in personal ungodliness. When, for me... It almost always results in personal ungodliness. Let me give you an example. Let's use a couple of examples. Let's use football and tailgating. What's wrong with football? So, uh, do you think people who watch football all Saturday are less spiritual than people who don't watch football all day Saturday? You can't say that according to this passage. Ultimately, you can argue that God designed football. Praise God. It's about time I hear a preacher say that. And so then I'm going to go to a tailgate party. And what's funner... I don't know if that's a word, but what's funner than being with my friends and my buddies out on the tailgate? You got the grill going and I know from the passage I'm allowed to eat steak off the grill and chicken breast barbecued. What's wrong with that? Let me tell you something. There is nothing wrong with that. You're allowed to do that. But then one day, and I know guys who've done this, they have a group of buddies that always went to the mountain cabin or they always had a group that went to the t- football games. And then one day, under great conviction of the Holy Spirit, they said, you know what, I am no longer going to do that. So you think you're more spiritual or something? No, it's just that when I do that and I enter in and we are to say, it's fun to enjoy a football game. God put that in us. And to enjoy a great meal off the grill. But you know what? I didn't get saved until I was in college. And when I'm with these guys, they always have a cooler full of beer. And then they pop them open, and the next thing you know, all I'm thinking about is, man, I want to drink a beer really bad. And the next thing you know, they're half drunk and talking trash and talking about other people's wives. And and I just can't be a part of that anymore. You understand what I'm saying? Let's take line dancing or quilting or let's use a female illustration here. I guess guys can line dance and quilt if they want. I mean, we're supposed to create, and it, and it feels good to move, and I can enter into that. You see, we got to be really careful about because churches go this way. Got all these ru- uh, rules written and unwritten. You can't do this, and you can't do that. God said, I created it all. Enjoy it. Line dancing's great. But then some guy starts really noticing the way other 
women, not his wife, move in the line dance. And the next thing you know, his thought life is taken over and he's, he's captured by the beauty of somebody else down the line. And every Thursday night at line dancing, he begins to look forward to... And the next thing you know, it's, you know what? I can line dance, but I got to quit going to that line dance. You see what I mean? When, when a behavior leads me to ungodliness, when a behavior begins to become a trap of the evil one, to appeal to my flesh and sucks me into the things of the world in such a way that I can no longer enjoy them as simply God's creation. The third principle about when to deny yourself I've already referenced, and that is specifically for prayer and fasting. According to 1 Corinthians 7, that is okay to do. Well, I think that this passage, first of all, is a warning. It's a warning to guard the gospel in our church. Do you know that? The Apostle Paul made clear in Romans chapter 3 and many other passages, there is no justification that comes from the works of the flesh. Our justification, our salvation in Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is clear that it is not by works, but, but it is a gift of God, lest anybody should boast. And so you, gotta, you have to be really careful of entering into this thought of theology and doctrine that somehow, through some kind of a self-denial, I can find myself in a, at a higher spiritual plateau or I can please God. I think it's also, number two, not only is this a warning to keep the gospel pure in our church, but this is a wake-up call to recognize that demons can teach at Fellowship Bible Church. That's why in the back of our... We've been criticized for this at some levels. In the back of our church doctrinal statement and covenant, we have another covenant that's called the Fellowship Bible Church's Teacher's Covenant. And every year, everybody who teaches here has to sign this. And every year, the elders review who's teaching at Fellowship Bible Church. Say, what a legalistic church. People are gifted. Let them go. And no, no. You know what our job is as the elders of this church? Is to watch over who's teaching our children, who's teaching our adults. What kind of gospel are they teaching? And to make sure that their doctrine is biblical and Christ-centered and that salvation is only in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, not of any works. It's an important document. Thirdly, I think that this passage is a word about being thankful. I don't know what you like to do. I can remember worshiping, skiing behind a boat. I don't get to ski very often anymore. My mom and dad used to live on a lake in Michigan. And up into my 40s, when we would always go home on vacation before mom and dad went to be with the Lord, the next door neighbor had a ski boat. And it seemed like every time I went to Michigan to mom and dad's, all I did was work all day because I wasn't there very often. My mom and dad needed help and I would work, 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 work. And then right before dark, my old neighbor, my dad's old neighbor, George, would come out on the deck and I would holler across to him. Their houses weren't far apart. I'd say, hey, George, why don't you take me for a ski? Sure, come on over. And he liked me, and it was an arrangement I knew I could do. And it was just about dark, and the sun was setting, and the lake was like glass. And I put my ski on and take off out of there, and I was the only boat on the lake, and just go a big loop around the lake and then come in up to shore. Not even get my hair wet. Got to take care of your hair. <laughs> do you know what it is to do something that's not spiritual, and it is a gift from God? 
and you are thankful and you worship and you say, thank you, Lord, for this creation and thank you for this moment of joy. Do you do that? How would you like to create this whole world and not have your people, your children, be thankful for all the nice things? We need to be thankful, people. We don't need to just be all worried about what I have to separate from to be spiritual. Don't take me wrong. But we need to enjoy God's creation. That's what Paul's talking about here. You're not more spiritual because you don't go skiing. You're not more spiritual because you skipped a golf game. And there's lots of principles involved, don't get me wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this instruction and I trust, Lord, that it's useful to our congregation today as we ponder and think about the gospel and we think about all that we, the ways that we're kind of hardwired to always want to do something for our own righteousness. And so make it clear to us, Lord, and recognize that Jesus is all we need and our needs are met in Jesus alone and that we cannot enhance the gospel by some ascetic, physical, painful, ritual. Father, may Fellowship Bible Church always stand for righteousness and stand for the gospel. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray.